Hello, and welcome to Fast Talk, your source for the science of endurance performance. I'm your host, Rob Pickles, here with Coach Connor. If you took a survey of endurance athletes of all levels and asked them what they feared most, somewhere near the top will be losing my fitness. Whether it's a planned off-season, a family trip, or being sidelined with sickness or injury, endurance athletes dread watching all their hard work slip away. When you're stuck on the couch, it can feel like your fitness is oozing out between those seat cushions. And in some cases, that's not far off. Blood volume drops quickly, and within four to five days, your VO2 max begins to slip. For new athletes, all of their gains after months of training can disappear in a matter of weeks. Fortunately, it's not all bad news. None of the immediate detrading effects are structural, which means you can get them back relatively quickly. And for lifelong athletes, the longer-term structural adaptations never fully go away. In this episode, we talk with well-known physiologist Dr. Inigo Mujica, recognized as one of the world's top experts on detraining, which he has defined in the literature as the physiological result of reduced training load. Along with Dr. Mujica, we talk with legendary coach Joe Friel, coach and physiologist Adam St. Pierre, and World Tour pro Tom Skoinch all of whom share with us their thoughts on navigating an off-season. So, take a break, but make it beneficial, and let's make you fast. Pathways from Fast Talk Laboratories are a new way to explore concepts, master skills, and solve training challenges. Our new cycling interval training pathway begins with the basics of interval workouts and progresses to more advanced details how to flawlessly execute interval workouts, which intervals bring which adaptations, and how to analyze your interval workout performance. Over 21 articles, interviews, workshops, and workouts, our new cycling interval training pathway offers you the chance to master cycling's most critical and nuanced workout format. See this pathway at fasttalklabs.com. Well, Dr. Mojica, real pleasure to have you on the show as we are talking about offline here. I have been reading your research for years, so always very exciting to get a scientist of your caliber on the show to talk to our listeners. Really interested in having you today because you even mentioned on your bio that detraining is one of your areas of specialty. Yes. Thank you for the invitation. I'm really happy to um, be in this podcast. And as you said, uh, I started doing some research on tapering many years ago, and that brought me to also doing research on detraining. And for those who don't know, that means what happens to you and your physiology and your performance when you reduce your, uh, your level of training or when you even stop training completely. Yeah. So why don't we start with what is the definition of detraining? Well, the definition that we provided in the year 2000 says that detraining is the partial or complete loss of training-induced physiological, anatomical, and performance adaptations as a result of training reduction or training cessation. And there is a reason for providing that definition. And it is that, in our opinion, people were using the concept of detraining improperly. They were considering detraining as a period of no training. Whereas, according to this definition, we consider that detraining is not a period of time, but the consequences or the potential consequences of that period of time during which your training is insufficient or it completely stops. So I guess the big, broad question I want to ask you is certainly there are times where people detrain and they have no choice. For example, you get injured or you get sick, you just can't train and you're going to experience some of those, those detraining consequences. But it's also pretty common, and I'm a coach, I have all my athletes do this, to have a period in the season, an off-season, where athletes intentionally detrain. Is there a value, and I know we're going to dive deeper into this later in the episode, but just give me the, the two-minute summary. Is there a good reason? Is there a value in detraining, or is this a mistake that athletes have been making for years? I think there is some good value in uh, stopping training, which will subsequently lead to a detraining process, particularly when the athletes are involved 
in very high level of training. I think uh, those athletes are going to need some physiological recovery, some anatomical recovery, and even some mental recovery. And that's the benefit you are going to get from that period of, of training cessation. So what are some of those benefits? Well, firstly, when I've been working with highly, highly trained elite world champion level athletes, their commitment to the sport is so extreme and the physiological demands of the training for months and competition and travel are so intense that they need to provide their bodies with some biological resources to get back into training the following season. And not only physiologically, they also need to reset mentally. I think it would be impossible to maintain that level of commitment year after year for a long, high-level sports career if you didn't have breaks in between and if those athletes didn't take some time off to think about other things, uh, take care of their own lives, uh, spend time with their family and friends, uh, occupy themselves with other interesting stuff that they might be doing, go back to university or, or whatever else. Otherwise, thinking only about your own sport for, for such long periods of time might even become unhealthy from my point of view. Let's hear from an elite athlete, in this case, World Tour Pro Tom Scoinch, and hear what happens when he doesn't take long enough a break. I most definitely am one to take enough time off the bike. I try and get to four weeks without touching the bike. Sometimes week three is as much as I can do, just because, yeah, I am a nerd and I like to ride bicycles. But I think that it is quite important to take the time off, just because, especially as a uh, Riders doing 30,000 kilometers a year, you get all these little micro injuries, little nagging pains here and there that uh, the body is not going to really heal itself if you don't let it uh, to really disconnect and really take the time off. So about how long do you take off and then how long do you find that it takes to get your fitness back after that time off? If I get to four weeks, it's been a good off season. If I get to four weeks without touching a bike, I might do some other light exercises, but that will be just more for fun than anything. And yeah, it takes a while to get back. <laughs> so it's always uh, at least a month and a half to start feeling good on the bike again. But usually by the time the season rolls around, I'm, uh, I'm ready to go. And even if maybe let's say the body isn't 100% ready for the first races of the year, I think at that point, it's really important to still have that fresh mind and still have that fire and desire to ride a bike because the season is long, long, long. Yeah, Toms, has there ever been a season where you didn't take a solid break off of the bike, maybe when you were more of a developmental rider? And how did that affect the season that followed? Actually, I think there was only one year where I took uh, like two weeks and a bit off and then started training back. And I mean, I felt a little bit burnt out during that year. At the same time, I don't think my performance really changed for the better, arguably maybe for the worst, but I wouldn't say that also for the worst. I definitely wasn't flying in December for whatever, because I suddenly started training a week and a half earlier, but I think it did come bite me in the ass later on. One thing that you mentioned was that reduction or the recovery from the mechanical stress, the physical load that athletes have, do you see the need to detrain across different sport modalities? Runners have a lot more mechanical load than cyclists do. Swimmers have less mechanical load too. So is there an even need across these sports or do athletes such as runners need more detraining to recover from the physicalness of their sport? First of all, I wouldn't be talking about the need for the training. I would talk about the need for training cessation, wow, okay. which is different. The training is the consequence of that. Mm. And that consequence is going to be different uh, between athletes, between sports, and between durations of training cessation. Personally, I think that every sport that is performed at high level with huge demands for training, irrespective of the mechanical load, is going to need some, some period of training cessation during the off-season. Because even if uh, swimmers, for example, 
have less impact in their joints than the runners, it is true that they might suffer a lot more at the shoulder level than, than runners. So even though the, the type of mechanical stress might be different, every sport has some mechanical stress that will probably benefit from a period of uh, training cessation. So basically what you're saying is we need rest. We need that cessation to basically let our bodies rebuild, get over a lot of damage that we've probably done to them. And detraining is a consequence of that, and it's an unfortunate consequence, but it's worth the price for what you gain from having at least a, a brief period off. Yes, that's exactly what I'm saying. And if you control the, the timing of that period of training cessation, you are going to be controlling also the amount of negative consequences that might take place in terms of, of detraining. And therefore, the recovery and the return to their normal fitness level and their regular performance capacities is going to take uh, less time when they start again. So what I'm saying is that you need that period. You have to accept that some amount of the training is going to take place, but there is probably a benefit to that in terms particularly of prolonging an athlete's career over time. And so here's a question to ask from a, a little bit of a different angle. We're discussing this topic now because we're going into the off-season for the majority of endurance sports, which is what we're focused on. And that seems like a very likely time to have training cessation and then the detraining that comes with that. Is there reason for athletes to be doing this closer to or even during their competition season? Maybe at the elite level there is or isn't, and then at the amateur level there is or isn't. But is this just a winter strategy or is this a, a multiple times throughout the year benefit? Normally, when we are dealing with elite-level athletes, the season is usually divided into different macro cycles. And at the end of each one of those macro cycles, there might be a period of training cessation. If you do a training cessation phase in the middle of the season, it's usually not as long as the one you would do at the end, at the very end of the season. Uh, so yes, I think there might be some interest in taking shorter breaks after each major macro cycle or after each major competition of the season, because uh, that allows athletes to reevaluate uh, what they have achieved, what they have done, reset and start again. So in my opinion, it's good to take small breaks. We know that during those small breaks, the, uh, consequences in terms of the training are not going to be very severe and they will get back to their normal levels very, very quickly. So I would recommend taking those small breaks, one, two, maybe even three small breaks uh, throughout the year and then a longer proper off-season at the end of the competitive season. So let's dive into what happens when your body starts to detrain. And look, I'm going to go back 20 years to my um, exercise physiology courses and, and some of the textbooks. And I won't lie, when I, when I was reading about it in exercise physiology textbooks, they were pretty glum. I mean, you, you got this impression that if you took five days off, you were going to lose all your fitness and it was going to take you two months to get it back. And it had me terrified of even taking a day off. But I would say it's really not that bad. And I'm, I'm going to be very interested in hearing you give that kind of summary of, of here's what does happen, here's what doesn't happen. I do think we need to, to set a couple terms here because it's not universal. I mean, you can't say here's universally what happens with detraining. There is short-term detraining and there's long-term detraining. There's also, uh, I thought you did a really good job of this in your reviews, pointing out the fact that detraining is very different in an elite endurance athlete versus somebody who's, who's very new to endurance sports training. So explain what you mean by both long-term and short-term, and also what you mean by somebody who, who's more elite versus somebody who's very new. Well, you are right in terms of the depressive aspect of listing the potential consequences of training cessation. And when I do my presentations about detraining, I always tell people, well, this is going to be a little bit depressing, but uh, don't panic. There is some there is some benefits of training cessation. 
there will be a positive message at the end at the end of the presentation. In our reviews about the training at the beginning of the 2000s, we divided a little bit arbitrarily short-term detraining and long-term detraining in periods of less than four weeks or longer than four weeks. So we consider that everything that might happen within four weeks of training cessation is short-term detraining, and everything that happens beyond four weeks is what we consider long-term detraining. The reason for that is that many athletes usually take a month off at the end of the season. So that's that's probably why we chose that cutoff, our mostly arbitrary cutoff of uh, four weeks to uh, separate long-term and short-term training. And in terms of the differences between highly trained and moderately trained or recently trained individuals, the reason for that is mostly that we were personally interested in the physiological consequences of training cessation in highly trained athletes. But quite often, the scientific literature did not provide sufficient data on that type of participants. So we had to rely on findings from moderately trained individuals to try to understand what would probably happen to highly trained individuals, because it's not exactly the same. No. I'd say if I, if I had to summarize it from reading your reviews, in the highly trained, you do see a much more rapid drop in their various fitness markers, which makes sense. They are, they are finely tuned machines. If they stop training, you're going to see that drop pretty quickly. But what was encouraging to see is in most attributes, you don't ever see them go back to the level that an untrained person would be at. Even in long-term detraining, they maintain some of their fitness. Where with the people who are fairly new to training, you don't see such a, a rapid drop when they stop training. But when it does drop, they can go right back to, to baseline levels as if they had never trained. Is that fairly accurate? That's exactly the message that we delivered in our reviews. I usually say that if you have a, a little hole in your pocket and you have a full pocket, you're going to lose some of that cash that you're carrying in that pocket. If you have the same size hole in your pocket, but you have no cash, <laughs> you're, you're not going to lose anything <laughs> or you have very little cash. And the one who has a lot of coins in the pocket is the elite athlete. Right. And the one who has very few coins in the pocket is the moderately trained or recently trained individual. So the elite athlete is going to have a bigger loss compared to their super fitness initial level. On the other hand, if we look at the longer term training cessation, elite athletes are always going to remain at a higher level than recently trained or moderately trained athletes. And, and of course, at a much higher level than initially sedentary subjects. Whereas those who are moderately trained or recently trained in the longer term, beyond four weeks of training cessation, they are way, way more likely to return back to zero, to their initial level, and basically have the same attributes as sedentary people. And Rob, you had one other distinction that we should make here. Yeah, we've been talking pretty deeply to this point about training cessation, meaning athletes whom are not training at all. Is this still applicable with a training reduction where the athlete might still be exercising, they might still be working out with purpose, but not to a level that's able to maintain their current level of performance or physiological variables. How does training reduction play into this conversation? Obviously, training reduction is going to reduce the velocity at which athletes are going to lose their physiological and anatomical and performance qualities. And in fact, Reduced training is one of the strategies that we can use during the off-season to retain some of those training adaptations that we achieved during the previous season. Of course, we also want to have some kind of mental recovery and we want to have some physiological recovery. And that training reduction should be sufficient to allow for that recovery. The more we train as a strategy to retain training-induced adaptations, the less we are going to have a, a proper off-season. 
And in fact, the characteristics of a, a period of reduced training are very well defined if we want to contribute to our retention of training-induced adaptation. And so if we're looking at both of these strategies, either training reduction or training cessation, as a means to enhance recovery, help the athlete ultimately perform better, there is potentially benefits to, say, stopping training completely for a shorter amount of time than reducing your training for a longer period of time because you're going to need that longer period of time to have the same recovery benefits. In my very first publication, we compared the performances of a group of 18 highly trained swimmers throughout a year, throughout a season. And at the end of the season, we realized that half of them had achieved a personal best, whereas the other half did not achieve a personal best. And we wanted to know whether there was something in training or in their personal characteristics that justified that different level of performance. And we couldn't find anything. The only difference between those who improved their personal best and those who didn't was their initial level at the beginning of the season. In other words, after the off-season, some of them came back with a performance loss of about 10%, whereas the other half came back from the off-season with, with a performance loss of only 4 to 5%. Throughout the following year, those who had lost only 4 to 5% improved less, but their initial level was sufficiently high that it allowed them to go beyond their personal best. On the other hand, those who came with a lower level of performance improved more throughout the season, but their initial level was so low that they did not reach that 100% and they could not go beyond that 100%. So for those athletes who come back from the off-season with, let's call it, a lot of the training or with a very low performance level, it might be interesting to use some kind of a strategy to help them retain some of those adaptations. Because otherwise, you might end up having an athlete who goes from 100 to 90 percent to 100 to 90 to 100 to 90, and there is no performance improvement in the longer term. The athletes who were in the other group, they could go from 100 to 95 to 101 to 96 to 102 to 97. And there would be some long-term progression for those athletes. So for those who are unfortunate to lose adaptation faster, and that is pretty much a personal situation, it might be interesting to use some adaptation retention strategies during the off-season, such as introducing some kind of uh, reduced training strategy so that they wouldn't come back so detrained at the beginning of the season. And we'll get, certainly at the end of this episode, we'll get into some of those strategies that you can apply. Ah, November. The air is crisp, the leaves are falling, and I get to take a break from riding my bike. Now is a great time of year to rest and reflect on the past season. Visit Fast Talk Labs and take a look at our pathways on recovery and data analysis. These two in-depth guides can help you get the most from your off-season. See more at fasttalklabs.com slash pathways. Let's dive now into what does change. So what detraining means, what happens to your body. And this is where I think you're going to have all our listeners groaning going, oh my God, is it that bad? <laughs> but let's start with the, uh, the cardiovascular side, because it does seem like that is where you see the biggest detraining effects in an endurance athlete. Yeah, I usually divide the, uh, the detraining effects into cardiovascular changes, metabolic changes, and muscular changes. And in terms of cardiovascular changes, the first thing that happens is that there is a very, very quick drop in plasma volume. As a result of this drop in, in plasma volume, there is also a drop in cardiac output. So initially, this drop is compensated by an increase in heart rate. So for a few days, your heart rate, both at submaximal intensities and at maximal intensities, is going to compensate for that reduction in stroke volume that 
takes place as a consequence of the drop in plasma volume. And how quickly does the plasma volume decrease? Well, this might happen. Uh, you might have a drop of five to ten percent within two to three days of training yeah. cessation. And if that training cessation occurs in a horizontal position because you are in bed for injury or for illness, that might take place even faster. Or the percentage of plasma volume drop might be even bigger. So it's a very, very quick process. I had a friend who was a uh, he was an elite cyclist. He, he raced professionally. He didn't understand any of this, and he was in his off season. And about three days into being, three four days into being completely off the bike, doing no exercise, he got into a hot tub with some friends. So he had lost all that plasma volume which means your, your body is having a harder time delivering the blood, delivering oxygen to your body. Got into a hot tub, was in the hot tub for too long, stood up and passed out. And they ended up calling an ambulance and they, they thought he was in deep trouble. And unfortunately, I had to pay a lot of money in an ambulance fee and everything else for them to go, yeah, you, you, you just lost a lot of blood volume. Understand how it works. Yeah, this is happening very, very quickly. And uh, at a given point, which usually starts after about 10 days, your heart rate does not compensate anymore for that drop yeah. in plasma volume and, and stroke volume. And that's when VO2 max starts to drop significantly. So normally after 10 days of training cessation, there is a linear increase in the VO2 max loss as the days goes on without any training. And the rate of VO2 max loss is about 0.5 per additional day without training, such that between day 10 and day 40, there is a drop in VO2 max of about 15%. So if you take 15% uh, within 30 days, that gives you 0.5% each day of training cessation after 10 days. And just to explain this to our listeners who are new to this physiology, stroke volume is the amount of blood your, your heart can pump per beat. If your blood volume has gone down, your heart's going to have a harder time pumping as much blood per beat. So the stroke volume is going to go down. Your heart's going to try to compensate by increasing your heart rate for a given effort. But the, as you're saying, that compensation isn't enough. So the heart just isn't going to have as, as big an output as it did before. And your VO2 max is going to go down. That's exactly what happens. So, but it also sounds like, you know, people hear the big drops in your VO2 max and go, oh my God, that's awful. Decreasing your blood volume is pretty rapid. Your body can rebuild that blood volume relatively quickly too. This is not major structural changes that in, in this detraining process that are going to take you years to get back. Yes, that is correct. The reason why the blood volume drops is because there is a loss in, um, in plasma proteins, such as albumin. And when you get back into training, you are going to recover that fairly quickly. As long as you start sweating day after day during training, you are going to start accumulating those plasma proteins that are going to have an osmotic effect to retain water on a day-to-day -day basis, and you are going to recover that plasma volume fairly quickly. But that VO2 max drop is only one of the changes that, that might happen. There are other things that happen that are going to be fairly quickly, such as, for example, your uh, muscle glycogen. Yep. Your muscle glycogen, even in the, in the trained muscles that you utilize the most during your exercise, if you're a cyclist that would be in your legs, if you're a swimmer that would be in your upper body, is going to start dropping within five days. And by three weeks of training cessation, the amount of glycogen in the muscles of an elite athlete is not going to be different to the amount of glycogen in the muscles of a sedentary person. So that advantage is going to disappear within about three weeks of training cessation. That's rapid. Now, as I remember, also at the muscle level, you're going to see a decrease in, in mitochondrial function. That's mostly due to the mitochondrial enzymes, correct? That's correct. And your oxidative capacity is going to drop, and there is going to be a higher reliance on 
carbohydrate as a substrate for exercise. So that means that you are going to use more carbohydrate for a given exercise intensity because your oxidative capacity has dropped and you have lost your ability to utilize fat as a substrate. So in some way, the metabolic consequences of training cessation are very, very similar to what we see in the metabolic syndrome in very, very sedentary people who are obese, who have insulin resistance, who might even have diabetes, and who have dyslipemia. Of course, we are talking different levels, but the mechanisms are exactly the same. Let's say that what happens from a metabolic point of view, what happens during a short period of training cessation of up to three to four weeks is a mini metabolic syndrome or, or a metabolic syndrome at a small scale. Yeah, you, you raised in your review that there's even a, a drop in insulin sensitivity, which, which quite surprised me. Yeah, that's what happens within six, six to seven days of training wow. stoppage. And there is also a loss in the transporter protein. The protein that transports glucose into the muscle cell uh, drops within one week. And therefore, we need to release more insulin if we want the same amount of glucose to get into the, into the cells. Yeah, and that's GLUT4, correct? Correct, yes. So you're saying the fact that I took a week off before Halloween and then ate a bunch of Halloween candy was probably the, not, not the smartest thing to do? <laughs> that's correct. Well, but you're, you're using up a lot of carbohydrate because you're not burning fat as well. Your glycogen stores are down. So I actually think Halloween candy is the answer to your problems, Trevor. Right. And it's certainly contributing to all that extra fat that I now have to burn <laughs> around my gut. But keep in mind that you are using a lot more carbohydrate, but your oxidative capacity has gone down. So you are using that carbohydrate by anaerobic means. And that means that you are going to increase your blood lactic concentration. And at the same time, because you are not training, you are losing bicarbonate, which is your main buffer for acid against the hydrogen ions that are going to dissociate from lactate. Yep. So you are in double trouble. I think you're in quadruple trouble Rebel. at this point, yeah. Well, so in all seriousness, <laughs> I'll, I'll share some of what this means because I did something this year I have never done and, and it was, for lack of a better term, stupid. <laughs> so I finished my season right at the, the beginning of October. I had a big race that I went to and, and was very happy with and then ended up taking basically two weeks off of the bike. I threw my back out so I couldn't do any training at all. Chris Case, who, who used to actually be on the show, was organizing this crazy ride, which was doing all the hardest climbs around Colorado, the, all the hardest dirt climbs. So it was a seven-hour ride with 14,000 feet of climbing, which is probably about 4,500 meters, somewhere around there. And I did that after not having trained at all, ridden a bike, anything, for two weeks. And what I noticed was I was needing to eat a lot more than I normally do. I was going for really sugary food and I still about three and a half hours into that ride bonked worse than I have bonked in a real long time. And it's because of what you're talking about. My body was not as good at burning fat. It was demanding a lot of carbohydrates. I was not getting enough to my system and I finally just depleted it. I, I bonked badly. That's first hand experience of metabolic detraining for you. It was quite the experience. Much higher reliance on carbohydrate to provide fuel for your exercise and um, yep. less capacity to oxidize fat. And the utilization of that carbohydrate is more anaerobic. So you are increasing your respiratory exchange ratio and you are simultaneously increasing your lactic concentration for a given exercise intensity. Yeah. Which all translated to the, the last couple hours of that ride were very miserable. <laughs> you used up all that recovery that you had gained for the two yeah. weeks beforehand. But so going back, you know, again, to explain the, to our listeners who are new to this, the mitochondria in your muscle cells, that is where your body does its aerobic metabolism. That's where, you know, that, that's called the powerhouse of your cells where most of your, your energy is produced or ATP is produced. 
and mitochondria love fat. They, they love to burn fat. And as you were saying, those enzymes are decreased, so the mitochondria aren't as good at using fat for fuel. So you have to rely more on, on carbohydrates. But I do think, again, an important thing to point out is it's not that you are losing mitochondria. It's not that your mitochondria density is, is declining. It's more the enzymatic activity, which is, again, another thing that your body can ramp back up relatively quickly. Is that correct? That is correct. Yes, your um, mitochondrial enzymatic activity might be dropping by as much as 20 to 40 percent within two to three weeks of training cessation. So the ability of your mitochondria to produce ATP, so the electron transport chain, is going to be significantly reduced. And that is why you need to rely more on the anaerobic metabolism to produce ATP. And you are going to be using up way more glycogen. And that's why you bumped when you were doing that crazy ride after two weeks of no cycling at all. Yes. (laughs) So I'll just share this quickly. When I posted the ride on Strava, my description of it was, I think I invented the worst form of polarized training ever. It's don't train for two weeks and, and on either side of that complete lack of training, do the, the most stupidly epic rides you can possibly do. Well, it's the most polarized of the polarized training <laughs> methodologies. About as polarized as you can get. And yes. uh, I, I wouldn't recommend it. <laughs> Zero versus 100. <laughs> yes. I'd love to bring some hope back into this conversation and talk about reversing the detraining that's occurring. We know that some of these detraining results like plasma volume, maybe that's a relatively quick thing to turn around. But when we talk about mitochondrial enzymes and other changes, what are we talking about for an athlete that is now entering back into training? What expectations can they have? The rule of thumb that is uh, often used is that you are going to need twice as long to get back to your previous level as the duration of your training cessation. So if you have been off by a week, it's going to take you at least two weeks to get back to a similar level. If you have been not training for four weeks, you are going to need at least eight weeks, eight to 10 weeks to get back to that similar level. So that's more or less the period of time that most athletes would need to start feeling like an athlete again after a, after a period of training stoppage. And with that return back to, to standard performance, I'll say, Do you typically see any differences in aerobic versus anaerobic energy system performance? Like perhaps maybe does a workload at LT1 improve faster than workload at LT2 or VO2 max or other performances? Or is it a pretty even increase throughout that time period? It probably has more to do with the type of training that you do when you get back into training. So if you get back into training and you do most of the work at uh, low intensity, you are going to recover that type of uh, abilities or that type of capacity uh, much quicker. And as you introduce other levels of training, then you will recover those capacities. So it has to do much more with what you do back into training than the, the, the human physiology itself. When you take a break, it does take time to get your fitness back. But as Coach Joe Friel is about to explain, it's an important sacrifice for athletes to make. Well, this is one of the conversations I have with an athlete when we move into what typically athletes call the off-season. I don't like that term because it implies that everything comes to an end. I prefer to call it the non-racing season or the transition season, something a little bit different, a little more vague, so they can't see it as being the end of their season. So... What I talk to my athletes about is you cannot be in top form all the time. It's impossible. You can't be in race shape. Athletes think they can. Athletes think the best athletes are always the best athletes. They're always ready to race. They're always, you know, year-round, 365 days a year. They can race at that extremely high level. It isn't that way at all. Athletes go through cycles in their performance, in their training, that are healthy cycles. We, we all need to go through cycles in our, in our training. You need to have times when you give yourself a break and say, I'm, I'm going to back off. It's time to, it's time to rest. It's time to uh, kick back a little bit, spend more time with my family. It's, it's time to spend more time working on projects for my, for my job. 
it's the end of the season, you know, and that's okay. You need to do that. When athletes get in trouble is when they decide they can't do that. So they came into great shape at the end of the season. And so now they decide what they're going to do is maintain that all the way till the end of the next season. So they got one year ahead of them to trying to maintain peak fitness. I can tell you, physiologically, it is not happening. It's not going to happen. All you're going to do is drive yourself in the ground. You're either going to become overtrained or burned out, but you're not going to finish a year trying to maintain peak fitness. It can't, it's impossible. It will not happen, assuming peak fitness was truly peak. So that's what I've talked to the athletes at the end of the season about. They're going to take some time off. They're going to do, they can still work out, but they can't be hard workouts. They can't be group rides, for example. They can't be intervals. They just got to be easy workouts. Go out and with your, ride with your spouse. Ride with a, a friend who is not nearly as strong as you or run with somebody who's not nearly as strong as you and stay with them. Just keep it slow and easy. And that's quite all right. That's necessary. That's part of the, of the cycle of fitness is that important, that, that very important cycle when you're at the end of your season. So I'm interested in throwing a theory that uh, I have shared before on the show, and it's something that um, I've told all the athletes I coach. I'm, I'm interested in sharing this with you and, and hearing your, your thoughts. I've always told my athletes that when we adapt to training, there, there's two types of adaptations. There's biochemical and there's structural. So to use the example, we talked about stroke volume. There's two ways to increase stroke volume. One is to increase your blood volume, which is biochemical. Another way is to increase the size of the left ventricle of your heart, which is structural. And what I tell my athletes during the detraining period, and, and this is part of what I, I was hearing from you in that conversation we just had, is most of the effects that you see in the detraining are the biochemical side. You have to detrain for a while to really start to see those structural changes go away, such as the heart shrinking in size or, or muscle fibers changing back to a more fast-twitch type muscle fiber. In a couple of weeks, you're not going to see those, those structural changes go back. What I always tell my athletes is a lot of those biochemical changes are actually a stressor on your body. They, they can take your body out of homeostasis. And your body's willing to tolerate that for a while, but over time it can lead to injury or, you know, as you said, just an overall type of, of fatigue from constantly putting that stressor on the body. So I always tell my athletes, one of the benefits of detraining is just clearing out some of that biochemical stress, knowing that, you know, in two, three weeks, you're not going to see the structural side disappear. And then you can get back to the base training where your, your body is in a good state homeostatically. What's your feeling about that? Yeah, that is correct. We usually differentiate between functional changes and structural changes. Obviously, the functional changes are more physiological, whereas uh, structural changes are more anatomical. And those anatomical changes are going to take longer because it is about structures that have been built by producing new proteins that uh, are used to, to construct body parts uh, to make it uh, simple and understandable. And it's not going to be easy to destroy those structures by training cessation, whereas some of the physiological changes are going to occur much quicker. So, for example, in order to see a very significant change in the size of the interventricular wall in the heart, you are going to need at least a couple of months of training cessation. Yeah. And typically, that, that's not something that athletes are going to do in the off-season. For example, when I, when I was training uh, world-class triathletes, my off-season was usually two weeks of forbidden training they, I would not allow them to do any exercise. I, I wanted to have complete rest. I wanted them to have complete rest because I knew what would happen within two weeks. And that's not something that worried me too much. And then I would give them two additional weeks of physical activity that was not triathlon related. So anything they enjoyed doing that was not swimming, cycling, or running. And within that period, it is unlikely that any structural changes are going to take place. Right. You are going to have some physiological consequences, such as the drop in plasma volume that we mentioned before, a 
a small drop in, in VO2 max, a drop in your glycogen levels in your uh, in your exercising muscles, and a few other things. But your strength performance is probably not going to suffer a lot within two to three to four weeks of training stoppage, particularly if those two weeks of no exercise are followed by two additional weeks of some kind of physical activity. So these triathletes that I was coaching during that third and fourth week of the off-season were doing surfing, uh, hiking in the mountains, rock climbing, playing tennis, any type of physical activity that they enjoy doing. And that is some kind of cross-training that uh, is going to be beneficial both physiologically and also psychologically. Which is, I think, a great way to do it. And I, I certainly encourage my athletes to do the same. So I'm really glad to hear that uh, that's not a concern for you as the expert on detraining, and that's something you, you give to your athletes. We always need to keep in mind that for highly trained athletes, cross-training needs to be what we call similar mode if it's going to be effective to retain training in these adaptations. That means that other activity that you are doing has to be similar to your usual sporting activity in terms of biomechanical demands and also in terms of physiological demands. In other words, for a marathon runner, it might be good mentally to go rock climbing, but it's not going to be an effective strategy to retain training-induced adaptation. Why? Because it is not biomechanically similar and it is not physiologically similar. On the other hand, for that marathon runner to go and do cross-country skiing, that is going to be a very effective cross-training strategy because the muscles involved and the type of movements are very similar to running and because it is still moderate intensity, low to moderate intensity endurance activity. So physiologically, it is also similar. With less highly trained athletes, even the similar mode of cross-training is going to be an effective strategy. So if a moderately trained athlete tells you, uh, during the off-season, can I go or should I go and, and play tennis or should I go and play basketball with my friends? I say yes, <laughs> because it is going to be an effective strategy to retain some of those training-induced adaptations, even if it is a dissimilar mode of training. So I do want to ask you about something that I, I saw in a recent study that I found very interesting, looking at the effects of two weeks of detraining. And it didn't seem like they identified a, a potential positive, which is in endurance athletes after two weeks of detraining, they saw a rise in anabolic hormones. And considering in endurance athletes, muscle loss, bone mineral density loss, I mean, all these things can be issues in endurance athletes. Having that period where you see the rise in the anabolic hormones could be beneficial for them in that, that off-season period. So I wanted to hear your, your thoughts on this. To be honest, I haven't seen that uh, study in endurance athletes, but there is previous evidence of a rise in anabolic hormones in strength training athletes. And of course, that is going to be beneficial to rebuild some of those body structures that have been, let's call it destroyed, or at least affected by months and months of very intensive training and competition. And that is potentially, yes, one of the benefits of taking some time off during the offseason. So you've already covered a lot of this, but let's shift over. And I just want to hear your, your overall suggestions for an endurance athlete, so a cyclist, a runner, or a triathlete, they're moving into their off-season. What are your suggestions on how to most successfully get through the, the off-season and set yourself up the best you can for the next season? Well, I think if they are athletes who have a very quick loss of fitness and very quick loss of physiological adaptations, they might have some interest in trying to retain some of those adaptations during the off-season. And that can be achieved generally by four means. One of them is doing some type of reduced training. So instead of training every day, they can go out and train only two to three times a day. And instead of training an hour and a half, they can go out and train for, for just 20 minutes. They should keep in mind that training intensity is key at the time 
of retaining training in useful adaptation. So even if they go out and train for 15 to 20 minutes, they should try to maintain an intensity that is fairly high because that is going to contribute to retaining those adaptations. So that would be strategy number one. The second option that they have to retain some of the training-induced adaptations is to use some kind of cross-training. But as I said before, highly trained athletes should keep in mind that cross-training should be similar mode, whereas moderately trained athletes will also benefit from dissimilar mode cross-training. The third strategy we could benefit from is what we call the cross-transfer effect or the cross-education effect. And that applies particularly when an athlete is forced to stop training because of a unilateral injury. The cross-transfer effect is the transfer of strength training gains from the ipsilateral limb, that is the limb that trains, to the contralateral limb. That is the, the limb that doesn't train. What this means is that you have an injury in your uh, left leg. You can still do some strength training with your right leg. And some of the benefits in terms of strength are going to happen also in the leg that is not exercised. So when you are in a phase of uni unilateral injury, training with the other limb might be of some benefit. And very recently, there is some literature regarding a fourth potential strategy, which is called mental imagery. And that means thinking about training without training. Hmm. And there is some solid evidence that you can retain training-induced adaptations just by thinking, particularly strength adaptations, just by thinking about doing the exercises but without actually doing the exercises. It takes time and it takes practice because it takes the same amount of time that it would take to actually perform those exercises in the gym or at home. You need to put yourself in the situation in which you think that you are going to do a set of squats and you have to take the time to think through those repetitions. So if you are going to do a 12 repetition set, you have to sit there and think repetition number one, repetition number two. So mentally, you are performing that repetition. So the session is going to take as long as a real strength training session would take. The only difference is that you are not doing the exercise. And believe it or not, it is an effective strategy in both moderately trained athletes and highly trained athletes. So even if you go on vacation and lay down on the beach and, and do nothing, think about doing something because that thinking about doing something is going to be contributing to you getting back to your initial level faster when you start the new season. I think this would be particularly beneficial for somebody who's injured, who simply has no ability to train. Yeah. And I think for everybody out there who is, who's questioning that and saying, it's not possible, that's not going to do anything. Mental imagery can 100% have a physical manifestation in your body. Right. And I'll challenge everybody right now to close your eyes and think about being on the start line of a race. What happens? Your heart rate immediately starts right. to go up, right? There you go. That's one very clear example and so I can certainly see the transference of a concept like that to other maybe biochemical changes, hormonal release, whatever so it may be thinking. throughout your body. Some sort of central governor exactly. response. There is one study in which two groups of volunteers had their forearm immobilized for four weeks. And one of the groups was sent home and the other group was instructed to think about contracting the muscles of the forearm several times a day without actually contracting the muscles. Right. And they used uh, EMG to actually measure that they were not contracting the muscles. They were only thinking about contracting the muscles. After four weeks, they took off the, the cast in the forearm. One group had lost, I think it was something around 28% of the strength in the forearm muscles. And the group that was thinking about doing the exercise only lost 14%. So they basically have the loss in strength just by thinking about doing exercise. And one week later, after taking off the cast, the group that had been thinking about doing the exercise was back at the initial level 
whereas the other group was still way below their initial level. So the recovery took place way, way quicker in the group that had been thinking about doing the exercise. Wow. That's how powerful it can be. Wow. Well, so shifting direction slightly, I, I know there was that great study by Dr. Ronestad that looked at having athletes do, I think it was every seven to 10 days doing interval work during the, the off season and show that those athletes were able to PR in their subsequent season. What's your feeling about that, actually including some high-intensity work in that off-season period? That would be a perfect strategy for those swimmers that I mentioned before that came back from the off-season with a very low performance level. But those swimmers who were unfortunate to have a, a very quick loss of fitness during the off-season. So the uh, homework that you could give those athletes to perform as a reduced training strategy could include some of those high-intensity efforts. Because as I mentioned before, training intensity is key at the time of retaining training-induced adaptations. So performing that high-intensity exercise is going to, on the one hand, allow them not to lose as much, and on the other hand, as shown by the study by uh, Ben Dronestad and colleagues, it will help them achieve further during the following season. So you would be getting two different benefits from performing that type of exercise. As long as there is sufficient recovery for those athletes that they don't feel that they have no off-season. Right. So I think mentally knowing that you are having an off-season is very important. So I think we should be very careful at the time of using these strategies because we also need the athletes to perceive and to feel that they are resting, that they are recovering, that they are having sufficient time to enjoy other activities, to have time for themselves, have time for their families, have time for their friends, and, uh, and think about something else. So don't get into the trap of, oh, because there are studies showing that if you do high-intensity interval training during the off-season, you are going to have a, a better performance the following year. And, and you prescribe so much training during the off-season that it's actually not an off-season. Oftentimes when giving recommendations like this, it comes down to it depends. And in this conversation, it depends really weighs on how quickly people are losing, how quickly they're detraining with the cessation of activity. Now, it seems like an athlete could just take an off-season, they could go through four weeks of detraining, and then they could test and see where they were, and they would know if they lost fitness quickly or not quickly, and then they would know, oh, how do I update my strategy in the future? But that's a very long term, and that potentially loses a season of performance for that athlete. Is there a way that an athlete could know relatively quickly? Are there metrics or measures that somebody could look at, say, after one week or after two weeks of a training cessation to say, oh, I'm on a rapid you know, decline in my performance ability and therefore I need to update? Or do they have to see it through to the end to have any actionable information? Well, the first year you might be losing that following season because at some point you are going to need to measure what happens during your off-season in order to realize whether the athlete that you have in your hands is someone who loses a lot or, or who doesn't lose a lot. We use some mathematical modeling with the swimmers in our studies. And the interesting thing is that when I went to the coaches, I was, as a, I was working as a physiologist in this case, and when I went to the coaches and gave them the uh, values of the individual profiles of adaptation and disadaptation, the coaches said, thank you, we knew that. The, the, what I mean by this is that most coaches know whether they have an athlete who loses a lot quickly or whether they have an athlete who doesn't lose much, uh, even if they stop training. So coaches should see, but also discuss with the athlete how much they feel that they lose when they stop training. I had two international level triathletes, one female and one male, who were fairly different after the off season. 
one of them could be really fit and ready to compete within about eight weeks of retraining in the new season. After an off-season that was basically identical, two weeks of nothing and two weeks of cross-training or physical activity unrelated to triathlon. The female athlete, on the other hand, she was normally not into a competitive level before about 16 to 18 weeks of retraining. And that is something that most coaches should be able to, to detect in their athletes, even without any time loss or even without any physiological measurement. As we just discussed, recent research is starting to claim that a complete cessation of training isn't necessarily the best course of action. So let's finish out with Adam St. Pierre, who told us he doesn't let his athletes detrain. My rationale is, you know, at least with the 20-somethings the I'm working for, is they're in the, the prime of life for adaptation. So as long as we can have periods of, of lower stress or lower strain, I don't think they, they actually need to detrain intentionally. You know, for instance, we conclude our, our Nordic race season usually in mid-March. March and April are, are pretty awesome times for backcountry skiing and crest skiing in the, the mountain west. So many of the athletes will go out and do some pretty big days on backcountry skis or, or crest skis. And while that may not be physiological rest, I think it is, is, is mental reset. And using that fitness that we so carefully build over the course of the year to then go, go recreate. And, and I would be you know, loath to require athletes for whom you know, exercise and, and training is, is a part of life. I would not want to force rest upon anyone who didn't, didn't actually want to rest. Um, I think you know, a, a time of unstructured you know, exercise is, is important for you know, re, refueling the body, refueling the mind. But I would never intentionally you know, have someone take time off unless it was really warranted, you know, like in an athlete who's overtrained or uh, you know, coming off injury or just needs forced rest. But I think for the vast majority of athletes, you know, forced rest is unnecessary unless it's, you know, unless it's needed for some reason. And, and mental reasons count, right? If you're just burned out and you don't want to ride your damn bike, then don't ride your damn bike. But if you want to, if you want to go run or if you want to hit the gym or if you want to go backcountry ski, I don't think activity is a bad thing. And like, I'm, I'm sure there, there is a time when, you know, forced detraining is, is necessary. I'm just having a, a hard time thinking when it might be. We're getting to the end of the show here and, and you're new to the show. So we always finish with what we call our, our one minute take home. So you will have one minute to summarize your, your key points or to, to leave our audience with one message that you really want them to hear. So do you have, uh, have something in mind that you'd like to share? Well, I would like to remind what detraining is. Detraining is the loss of fitness that takes place when you stop training. Don't get obsessed by it. Don't think that you should never stop training because you are going to lose fitness. Yes, if you stop training, you are going to lose fitness, but some of those losses are going to recover fairly quickly. So my message would be, don't be afraid of taking some time off every now and then, and particularly at the end of the competitive season, because I think the benefits of taking time off outweigh the detrimental effects of taking that time off. So don't be afraid of taking your time and enjoying yourself, thinking about something else at the end of the season. Refresh your mind and get back into training fresh, ready, and eager to start training again and achieve a higher performance level the following season. Great message. Rob, you want to go next? Yeah, my message is, uh, my take home from this is to be honest with yourself. I think that athletes need to understand that training cessation or training reduction is important. Ultimately, that will help them achieve better performance, but that they need to be honest with themselves with how quickly they lose fitness when they have training cessation to help them guide that strategy as they reduce that workload or stop that workload completely. But the other side of this too is when you come out of this break, athletes also need to be honest with themselves with the level that they're at at that point in time. And this isn't something that we necessarily discuss today, but I do want to throw it out there. If you come back and try to train at the exact same level as when you were at your peak of fitness, 
two to four weeks prior, you're probably setting yourself up for failure. So uh, get retested, understand where you are now, because these changes did occur, you're not going to do the same workloads at the same heart rates, and that's okay. But be honest with yourself with what you should be doing at that moment. So I actually started with one message, but I'm, I'm finishing with another. After reading all your, your research again, the thing that really struck me was seeing that most of those rapid detraining effects that we see are also the things that we rebuild fairly quickly. So again, it's just not something to, to lose sleep over or get too concerned unless you do a big detraining period two weeks before your target event. Then you're in a bit of trouble, but for an off-season you're, you're going to get it all back and you're going to get it all back relatively quickly. But something you kept bringing up today that, that really fascinated me is really having that understanding of, are you somebody who detrains a lot or are you somebody who detrains a little? And, and I was thinking of all my friends, all my old teammates, and there is a, a huge difference. You know, I think of Chris Case, Chris Case could take a month off and come back and still be <laughs> what felt like full strength. I can tell you from me, you know, I always finish my season at the beginning of October and then get back to training in, in early November. And I probably see my FTP drop about 60 watts. I detrain a, a lot. So it's, I think it's very valuable to know which you are. And then I think you gave great suggestions on, on how to handle your off season, depending on whether you are somebody who detrains rapidly or not, or a lot or not. So in your case, you would probably benefit from using some of those uh, training adaptation retention strategies. Yep. That's what it sounds like. Well, again, Dr. Mahiga, thank you for coming on the show. It was a real pleasure having you. Thank you for the invitation. That was another episode of Fast Talk. Subscribe to Fast Talk wherever you prefer to find your favorite podcast. Be sure to leave us a rating and a review. The thoughts and opinions expressed on Fast Talk are those of the individual. As always, we love your feedback. Join the conversation at forums.fasttalklabs.com to discuss each and every episode. Become a member of Fast Talk Laboratories at fasttalklabs.com join to become a part of our education and coaching community. For Dr. Inigo Mujica, Tom Scoinch, Joe Friel, Adam St. Pierre, and Trevor Connor, I'm Rob Pickles. Thanks for listening.